This is They Create Worlds, episode 165, Allied Leisure. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Once again, we go into the breach. But this time, we go into the arcade breach and find new ways to spend our hard-earned quarters with a wonderful new company called Centuri. Which was actually a rather complicated old company called Allied Leisure Reborn. So we, of course, will be covering that entire history because it is the same company, just with a name change. But Centuri is a company that is not necessarily well-remembered today because they didn't do much original product. They did a little, but what little they did didn't even do that well. They imported some very popular Japanese games, and they were kind of one of these important companies right at this kind of key inflection point as the Golden Age is really taking off when Japan is producing so much content in the aftermath of Space Invaders and Galaxian, but is still not necessarily getting all of that product into the very lucrative U.S. market. And so Centauri was an important middleman in that process and was very briefly one of the most successful arcade game manufacturers in the United States before the crash kind of ruined all that. And before that, in its Allied Leisure incarnation, it was a major competitor to Atari and others at the very beginning of the Pong boom. So there's a lot of good history around the company, even though it's not well-remembered. That's why we're going to talk about it today. Supposedly, they had a whole bunch of really cool arcade games for us to play. Yeah, one or two. So since it doesn't start a Centauri, that's where it ends up as, where did Allied Leisure come from? Allied Leisure was the brainchild of a coin-operated veteran who had been in the industry for quite a long time, uh, even before that, by the name of David Braun. David Braun grew up in New York City and actually got his start in the record business, not in the coin-op business. In 1944, he and his brother Jules founded a record label called Deluxe in New Jersey. They were one of the really early labels to record R&B artists coming out of places like New Orleans, kind of this proto-rock and roll stuff right before rock and roll. So actually a kind of innovative label in that sense, though this didn't really last very long. Now, the family did have coin-op ties because their father, uh, Adolf, actually ended up serving as the president of the Shuffleboard Company of America. While Shuffleboard doesn't have to be a coin-operated game, this was coin-operated shuffleboard, something that was briefly very popular in the uh, late 1940s as a coin-operated product. There were companies dedicated to that, so there was a coin-op background in that sense, and David himself had some aptitude for designing this kind of thing. So he decided in 1952 to move to Florida not with his brother, his brother wasn't involved in this, and found a new coin-op company called Alltech Industries, which was involved in the manufacture of kitty rides, pool tables, and grip testers. We have to remember, we've talked about this kind of obliquely in some of our episodes, but in the 1950s, traditional coin-op was in a bit of decline because with the move out to the suburbs, the dispersal of the population, and with the continued battles that games like pinball were having with legislators who thought it was a form of gambling, 
a lot of traditional coin-operated amusements had kind of fallen out of favor in this period, and there were only a couple of companies really being successful in that. But kiddie rides were absolutely exploding in the 1950s. For those that don't know, kiddie rides, which still exist today, are these little horses or cars or rocket ships or whatever else that you sit in and you put a coin in the slot and then you know it moves up and down or side to side a little bit and gives the kid the sensation of going on this little ride. I mean, they're for really young kids generally. They were quite common when we were kids. I don't think so much anymore. But even when we were kids, Jeffrey and I, they were quite common in front of supermarkets and places like that, where, you know, mom's bringing little Johnny along for shopping and little Johnny doesn't like being there. And so mom can promise little Johnny that if he behaves in the grocery store, that he can get a ride for a quarter at that time on the little horse ear and the little car on the way back out of the store. Even in the 1950s, when you had the population dispersing and becoming more suburban, this was something that was very much in demand. This was the baby boom generation, so there were a lot of children. It was just kind of a good outlet. So there was room for someone like Braun to kind of move into this area. He also got into pool tables, as I said, which were becoming somewhat popular in the 50s as well as a coin-operated amusement. Even though he wasn't in Chicago, he was able to have some success with his company, Alltech, by getting into some of these new emerging areas that Chicago hadn't necessarily monopolized in the same way, though obviously the Chicago companies were also creating things like kiddie rides themselves as well. He was actually the designer of many of the products that they did, so he was running the company, but he also designed a lot of it. He had some talent in that area. The interesting thing that they kind of did at Alltech is they combined other more traditional kind of coin-operated amusements with the kitty ride. For instance, they did a game in 1961 called Indian Scout, in which you were riding on a horse, a kitty ride horse. You know, this isn't meant to be a sophisticated simulation, just like these kitty rides outside the supermarket, except that you were also armed with a gun, a six-shooter, and you were shooting bison while you were riding in your kitty ride. So you had some of this kitty ride thing, and then also some other coin-operated stuff on top of it. So they had some success with that. One of the more talented employees, it turned out, at Alltech, in addition to Braun himself, was a real young guy by the name of Ron Halliburton. Halliburton got involved with engineering not through any kind of formal education or anything, but actually by working on stock cars, NASCAR stock cars. He got into building engines and other car parts. He was from Nashville, and so he was building cars with other people and then taking them down to the uh, Nashville Fairground Speedway to see how they would fare against other racers. He fell in with an older engineer as part of this NASCAR stuff. Together, the two of them ended up creating a bill changer together. They were kind of expanding. This engineer took Halliburton under his wing, taught him some things, and then they went into partnership together to create a bill changer that changed you know, bills and uh, into change different denominations. From there, he was kind of exposed to this coin-operated games market, because, of course, bill changes are something that were used in those venues, kind of got enamored with the potential for that, and actually built his own coin-operated slot car machine. Slot cars, for those that don't know, being these little electric racing sets, uh, some of you may have had them as a kid, where you've got a track and you've got a groove or slot in that track where there's uh, electrical wiring and then you have a car that has a metal contact on it and so you stick the car on that track and then you have a little controller and you can race the car around your little track. 
I'm sure you, Jeffrey, have played with slot cars before. I know I had a, a small set when I was a kid. Yes, I do know you had a small set when you were a kid. I had one. <laughs> you had one. Shenanigans happened. Cars went around. Explosions happened. You still even have them today. Yes, absolutely. So there was a time before more sophisticated coin-operated driving games that slot cars were actually seen as a coin-operated amusement as well. So it was the same kind of thing, the same kind of slot car set that you could take home, except in a cabinet in an arcade, and you'd pay some money to uh, play the game. So he created this uh, slot car racer. It didn't do well. He got some investors together. He tried to get it going, but he didn't have any success with it. But he did meet Dave Braun through the process of making this machine. Braun was impressed enough with his technical ability that he ended up hiring Halliburton into Alltech, where he eventually rose to become president of the company and was another one of their key designers. Flash forward to the end of the 1960s. Rob Braun retires. He was born in 1908, so at this point he's in his late 50s, early 60s. He's had a good run, and he's ready to stop, so he divests himself of his stock in Alltech resigns his uh, corporate positions and is ready to go into retirement. He's done. But he ends up being pulled back in because of his son, actually, Robert. Robert Braun suffered from cerebral palsy, so he didn't have really much in the way of prospects in the job world, (laughs) in the corporate world or anything, because, I mean, there's still obviously a lot of stigma today against those that have mobility issues and whatnot, and it was far worse back then. His son needed some kind of meaningful occupation to occupy his time, but in that day and age, couldn't find that out in just the corporate world going out himself. They end up founding a new company together, basically so that Robert Braun has something that he can call his own. They start by just calling it DNR Braun Enterprises, short, of course, for David and Robert, DNR. Of course, it's going to be a coin-op company because this is the world that the Bronze have been in. This is the world they know. David comes back to serve as the chairman of it. Robert comes back to serve as the president of it. They lure Ron Halliburton away from Alltech to become the chief engineer of this new company. In 1968, David Braun is back in the coin-op business with a DNR Braun company which very quickly, in November 1968, is renamed Allied Leisure Industries. Once again in Florida, Hialeah, Florida. Why do they do the name change? Because DNR Braun Enterprises, that's just like a holding company kind of name. I mean, that's a nothing name. That doesn't tell anybody what the product is. So Allied Leisure, I mean, I don't know the exact origin of the name Allied Leisure. I do know that they merged a couple of different holding companies they had together to form it. I don't know if that's why they called it Allied, because it was a combination of a few different things or not. Leisure, it's a leisure industry company. I mean, that lets people know what they are. I don't know exactly why it's Allied Leisure, but it's, it's clear they changed the name because they needed something that better described what they were doing, which was coin-operated amusement. Once again, this is kind of a problem in this time period. By the late 60s, the coin-op industry has stagnated. It's very small. It started to come back a little bit. We've talked about the technological renaissance around games like Nutting's Computer Quiz, Chicago Coins Speedway, Sega's Periscope. We've talked about that in some of our other coin-op episodes. So the industry was starting to enter into a kind of exciting new technological phase, but it had been going through years and years and years of contraction. There were only five major manufacturers left in Chicago, 
and Chicago was absolutely the heart of the industry. It was all fine and good for Alltech to have its little niche in kiddie rides and whatnot down in Florida during the uh, 50s and 60s when Dave Braun was involved with the company. But it's kind of another thing now to be establishing a whole new company in 1968 in a place that is not Chicago, because this is a very insular industry. At first, they really weren't even going to try to compete with those Chicago companies, just as Atari did a few years later in California. The original idea behind the company was to come up with innovative and interesting designs and then find a partner, get one of the factories up in Chicago to actually manufacture the darn thing. That's how Atari was founded, too. However, when they went around and kind of were trying to shop product around, they just weren't getting the kind of deals they wanted. They weren't getting the contracts, the financial commitment that they thought would make all of this viable. They finally decided to manufacture themselves, which, again, is a very challenging thing to do in this time period for any coin-op company, let alone one that's all the way in Florida, which is not in any way a center of the industry. They get a factory operation going, a very small one at first, a thousand square feet. Just to give a rough idea, the big manufacturers in Chicago had factories that were in the tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of square feet. So they got a very, very small factory together. They hired primarily Cuban immigrants, because Hialeah is in the Miami area, so there's a big Cuban population, and uh, they hire a lot of Cuban immigrants. They get a little uh, manufacturing line going, and they get their first games out in 1968. Their very first game, a novelty game called Monkey Biz, it's a game where you had a metal hook and you were using it to snag plastic monkeys from a playfield. It didn't really do all of that well, but then they had a lot more success with their second game, which was a game called Unscramble. By this time, late 1968, Nutting Associates Computer Quiz, uh, which we've talked about before, had come out, and its competitor, IQ Computer from Nutting Industries. So there was kind of this new, very brief craze for solid-state educational or trivia or mental puzzle kind of games that grew out of the success of these quiz games. Allied Leisure decided to take a go at this with a game they called Unscramble, which basically gave you uh, combinations of letters, and then you had to unscramble them to create three-letter words. Again, they're trying to hit a niche that the Chicago companies haven't hit on yet, because these quiz games, you know, they're coming from the two nutting companies in California and in Milwaukee, so this is an area that they can maybe squeeze into in this kind of new technological renaissance going on, and so Unscramble does pretty well for them. But their big game, the game that really gets them going in 1970, is a game called Wild Cycle. We've talked before in some of our other coin-op episodes, we've talked about this time period and the technological things that were going on. And of course, one of the things that we talked about is this new breed of driving game. In the past, driving games were either slot car games, like the ones that we have talked about previously in this episode, or they were these rotating drum games that we've talked about before as well, where you've got this kind of model of a car set on top of a rotating drum. So you steer it back and forth to kind of keep it on the road. Drive Mobile, not the first game of its type, but kind of the 
first big game of its type uh, in the United States back in the 1940s, and there had been other games of that type since then. Then in 1969, the Japanese company Casco had come out with Indy 500, which we talked about, which was kind of a new paradigm because it had individual cars painted on individual discs. Then these discs were lit by a light bulb in the cabinet, and they were in these very bright colors. So when these uh, translucent discs were lit, they were very bright looking. It almost looked like a cartoon, even though it was just a painted disc. Then these individual discs would be on a track, and they would spin around on the track, and the individual discs then, because they were on these individual platters, they could collide with each other, so you could have collision detection. So you would race around a track, avoiding other cars, and it almost looked like a cartoon. I mean, it was something that really had not been seen before in the arcade. And so these driving games just took off, and Casco did it first. Then Chicago Coin, either licensed, stole, copied, whatever, that concept creates Speedway, which is the game that really brought this to the United States, sold thousands of units in a time when that was no longer common in the industry, and set off this brief craze for these driving games. And so Allied Leisure entered this field with their Wild Cycle, which took the same basic concept except with a motorcycle instead, so a handlebar controller and and motorcycles instead of racing cars. They also included an eight-track player in the machine. You could put eight-track cartridges in it to have music. So they didn't ship it with music, but there was an eight-track player in there, and arcade operators would often put eight-tracks in there with music. So it was because of that, it was one of the very first coin-operated games that actually had a soundtrack in a manner of speaking. I mean, it wasn't an official soundtrack. But you had the capability to put music and gameplay together. And this is something that Allied Leisure started to emphasize in some of its discussions on the product as well. So that's kind of an interesting moment. I mean, it's, it's not that influential. It's not like you can say, oh my gosh, video games have music because of Wild Cycle. Because, of course, film had music long before that. It was an obvious step in something like video games to combine a moving image with music because it had been done already for 100 years or more. It's still an interesting footnote as one of the first coin-operated action games where there was a capability to have a score in the background. That's the game that launched the company into the stratosphere. They had kind of been losing money before that point. Then Wild Cycle came along and was highly successful for them. They followed that up with another technological, one of these electromechanical uh, high-technology games, what they called audiovisual games at the time in the trades called Sonic Fighter, which was a shooting game where you were shooting down jets. It was similar to some other products that had come out from Sega and from Midway previously. So again, they're not necessarily innovating too much in this field, but they're jumping into this new area because they feel this is one area where they can make their mark because it's not already monopolized by the big Chicago companies like pinball or traditional electromechanical games are. That's kind of where Allied Leisure is come about 1973. I mean, they do a couple of other games in there as well. They do a quiz game, because why not? They do a few other electromechanical games, some other air combat games, etc. Then they try to get into pinball in a unique way. If you're going to get into pinball in this period, you really do have to do it in a unique way. Because the Chicago companies have a complete monopoly on this. 
We've talked about this in some of our other episodes. It's not just that they have pinball designers that have been making pinball for years so they know how to make it. It's not even just that they have factory staff that have been building pinballs for years so they know how to build them. Obviously, these are both things that are very important to maintaining Chicago's dominance in pinball, but they're not the key thing. The key thing is, because this industry has been in Chicago for so long, I mean, the pinball industry has been centered there since the 1930s, and coin-op in the Chicago area goes back even decades before that. An entire infrastructure has built up there. There are companies that have been established to make all the different little fiddly parts that you need in pinball machines. Relays and steppers and screws and cabinets, woodworking, everything has built up in the area. Because you have a bunch of these super dedicated companies as subcontractors for all these various parts, they can make pinball cheaper in Chicago than you can make it anywhere else. Because the whole infrastructure is there. This is the same problem Atari ran into, which we've talked about before, when they tried to enter pinball just a few years later in the mid-1970s, is they thought that they would be innovative and get in with some new ideas, but they couldn't compete on quality and cost with Chicago. Allied Leisure knew that they would have to do something different or weird in order to compete. They came up with a unique concept called Shaker Ball. So as you know, Jeffrey, because you are a fan of chasing the silver ball from time to time. One thing that pinball players always try to do to influence the way their game plays out is they will bang on the pinball cabinet to try to get that ball to move just a little bit this way or that way to get it to the place that they want it to be. We call it more of a technical tap or a jostle that we do in order to make sure that the game appropriately handles the ball and doesn't send it down the gutter ball chute for the upteenth time. Absolutely. Which is why, to counter us, the wonderful manufacturer decided to put in a little thing that goes, if you do this more than three times, we're just ending the game. Yes. Various forms of tilt mechanisms, which are designed to stop excessive banging on pinball cabinets. As much as anything, because it's detrimental to the long-term function of the machine, it's cheating as well, but it's also something that, you know, will cause the machine to degrade faster over time because there's so much banging on it. It's still something that pinball players like to do and like to do as much as they could get away with on the machines. Dave Braun and Ron Halliburton thought, well, let's lean into that. Let's create a different type of pinball machine that actually encourages the player to shake the cabinet that's designed to be shaken, not stirred. So they came up with this vertical orientation pinball machine rather than horizontal, and there were handles on the sides of it. Then above the handles were the buttons for the flippers. So you would hold the handles with your hands, and then you would use your thumbs to control the flippers then you would be able to use these handles to actually move the pinball game up and down, to actually literally shake it in order to try to get your desired effect. They called these games Shaker Ball for kind of obvious reasons. It was an interesting concept, but it didn't go anywhere. The main reason it didn't go anywhere is because of a problem that would plague Allied Leisure literally through the entire life of the company. They just couldn't 
manufacture them reliably. Allied Leisure, throughout its history, just had a problem doing quality manufacturing. I don't know exactly why that is. I do think it's in part because they were in an area of the country where there just wasn't a lot of know-how on this. I just don't think there were a lot of people skilled that they had access to to be able to come in and throw this all together. I think that was a big part of it. As I said, they were using a lot of Cuban immigrant labor, which there's nothing wrong with. I don't know if it was all legal or not, but I'm, you know, or if they were using some illegal, I'm not getting into that because I don't know and I don't want to cast aspersions. And I'm not casting aspersions on using Cuban labor, far from it. There is the indication that perhaps in their desire to keep costs under control, that they weren't necessarily hiring the most skilled of people to work the lines. Now, it's it's not because they're Cuban. I'm not casting aspersions on Cubans. Don't make that your takeaway from that statement. But I think they were hiring Cuban labor because it was relatively cheap, and I don't think they were putting necessarily a lot of effort into training them or getting highly skilled labor in these areas, which is their problem. It has nothing to do with them being Cubans, like I said. They couldn't get them working reliably. Because of that, you know, they get a few orders, they'd ship a few out, then, you know, the troubles would begin, and then people wouldn't want them, you know, this kind of typical thing that happens with a shoddy product. They were still working on it. They released the first ones in 1972, one called Sea Hunt in May, another called Spooksville in September, and they were still looking at working on perfecting it and continuing to go strongly in that area in 1973 and try to figure this out, but their entire plan was derailed, was shaken off course, one might say, when Pong hit the market. Pong was kind of the new hotness. It was. And remember that Allied Leisure is a company that kind of needs that, needs to be on with the new hotness to have a chance of competing. Because as I said, they're this little outfit in Florida. It's difficult for them to compete with these big companies in Chicago. And that's why, you know, they moved into the quiz and trivia games after the computer quiz fad. And then they moved into the advanced audiovisual games, the driving and shooting games with race cars and jet fighters after the success of games like Periscope and some of the stuff Midway was doing. That's why they're now going to move into video games. They had a major advantage there because even though they had a lot of reliability problems, They did have a large factory. Some of their early successes had allowed them to build up a decent-sized factory. So they had a large manufacturing capacity, even if they weren't always great on the reliability. But with something like Pong, it's so simple that there isn't necessarily a lot of reliability issue. Early video, something like Pong, is the perfect marriage of coin-operated game with the factory capacity of Allied Leisure. And we have to remember that Atari was having a tremendously difficult time getting a factory operation going. I mean, tremendously. They were hiring, they were literally hiring people off the streets. They were getting, you know, kids fresh out of high school, kids fresh out of college, hippies off the street. They'd go down to the unemployment office and just say, send us all your people. It was a mess. It took a long time for Bushnell and Dabney to get their manufacturing issues sorted out. Because of that, as we've talked about before, we did a whole episode on the Pong boom, which we talked about Allied Leisure in a little bit. They ceded the market to the competition because they couldn't get out enough machines to meet demand, so distributors were going to go someplace else. And in fact, that's literally what happened to get Allied Leisure into the Pong business. 
Atari's first distributor in San Francisco, Advance Automatic, was getting very impatient with Atari, as were many other distributors, because they could not get all the machines they wanted. You know, we've talked about this before, coin-opposite novelty field. When a game takes off, you need to get in on it right then and there, because six months from now, a year from now, it may not be popular anymore. You are missing your market in coin-op if you cannot get enough machines to satisfy your operators. So Advanced Automatic, the distributor in San Francisco, needed another source. So they sent one of their machines down to Allied Leisure and said, here's the hot new game that's coming out of California. This thing's huge. We can't get enough of them. The manufacturer can't make enough of them. Why don't you take a look at this and see what you can do with it? Because it's all off-the-shelf parts. There really wasn't any attempt to conceal them back then. You know, Atari didn't even know that they were going to have this huge hit on their hand. As time went on, they would go through additional steps to try to cut down on the ability to pirate. They'd try to obscure what chips were being used. They would create custom chips that would be harder for other companies to replicate. You know, there were attempts to protect the product a little bit. But Pong, it was kind of hastily thrown together and thrown out there using completely off-the-shelf components, by which we're talking about integrated circuits and the like. That was a real simple thing to just look at a board, read all the part numbers on the board, copy all the traces, put in similar parts, and you have Pong. I mean, it's super simple to copy if you have that kind of know-how. Advance sends this uh, Pong unit down to Allied Leisure and says, why don't you make this? And Braun and Halliburton are like, why don't we make this? Well, they can't quite make it themselves because they don't have any people on staff that are electrical engineers that can work with solid-state components. I mean, they have people that are electrical engineers, but not with this technology. They know they can build it. Their manufacturing guy, Troy Livingston, is actually appalled when he sees it, (laughs) when he sees Pong, because it's just a mess, an absolute and utter mess. Uh, And this is because Atari had never been in coin-op before. The logic was well-designed. Pong was a well-designed, put-together product. Al Alcorn did a good job with that part of it. But they had no idea how to create something that could survive the rigors of the arcade because they'd really never done it before. The coin circuitry was a mess. The power supply was a mess. It was fine if it was just something that you were going to have in, like, your living room. But this stuff wasn't going to be in your living room. This stuff was going to be an arcade where people bang on the machines. Even when it doesn't help move the ball in Pong, they still bang on the machines in frustration. They spill beer on the machines because they're playing these games in bars. All sorts of horrible things happen to them. Troy Livingston at Allied Leisure redesigned those parts, kind of the analog parts of the machine. But they would need a partner in order to create the boards. That partner ended up being a company up in Chicago, of course. (laughs) Where else? Called Universal Research laboratories. Universal Research was founded by two veterans of the coin-op industry, particularly of the jukebox industry, named Ed Polonik and Bill Olegis. They had worked for a variety of companies in Chicago, Seberg being one of them, and then after they'd had kind of enough of corporate life, they decided that they would join together and found their own company. They founded this company primarily to provide soundboards, solid-state soundboards, two companies making these advanced new audiovisual games. Because there really was a technological renaissance going on in this time period, as we've talked about in this episode and as we've talked about in previous episodes. 
where the industry was starting to incorporate solid state more and more into its machines. It was still a hybrid thing. It was still electromechanical. We're not talking video games. We are talking about a lot more solid state coming in, and one of the areas where that first appeared was in sound in some of these fancy shooting games and driving games. So URL primarily was doing, at first, when it started, was doing soundboards for companies like Midway and Chicago Coin and and whoever else who were making these new advanced games, but still had old school staff that didn't really necessarily understand this stuff. They both knew Solid State, and they'd done a lot with sound because they were in the jukebox industry, so this was an area for them. They also did some other ventures outside of that because, I mean, just doing soundboards isn't going to be enough to keep the lights on on its own. So they did some other stuff. They did they got involved in, I think, like car alarms and stuff like that, some other audio-related things that were not entertainment, but they were founded on the principle of doing this stuff for the coin-op industry. So because they had a good reputation as a company doing solid-state design, doing printed circuit boards for the coin-op industry, Allied Leisure contracted them to create their Pong clone. I mean, they basically gave them the board from the Pong machine they had and was like, here, make us one of these. Here's $50,000 down payment. Go make us one of these. So they did. And as we talked about in our uh, Pong episode, uh, the result of that was the game Paddle Battle. Paddle Battle isn't particularly remarkable as a Pong clone. It's not like it was a better game than Pong or anything like that. It was a competent Pong clone. And the important thing is, Allied Leisure could crank out 150 of those a day in their factory operation down in Florida. Atari's lucky if they can get a dozen assembled in a day at this time period. They don't even have an assembly line in this time period. I mean, Jeffrey, Atari has no idea what they're doing. You would think they would have at least an assembly line. Yeah, you would think. You would. But Bushnell and Dabney, they'd never been involved in this. They were engineers. They didn't have an operations guy. They would finally eventually get some operations people. But when they started, they didn't have operations guys. They hadn't even been planning to manufacture their own product. Bally turned them down on Pong, as we talked about in many episodes. They knew that this was going to be a massive hit. So they're like, well, then we have to make it ourselves. They would wheel the cabinets individually into the middle of the floor at the converted roller rink, not exaggerating, converted roller rink that they were manufacturing in, a cabinet would be wheeled into the middle of the floor, and then one by one, everyone would stuff their part of the game into the machine. You know, the person would install the television, would install the board, would install the harnesses, would install whatever. I don't know what the order was, but the point is, that's how they were making these. You just wheel a cabinet in the middle of the floor, and then one by one, stuffing in. There was no assembly line. You're at a freaking roller rink that is actually designed specifically for an assembly line. You just set a cabinet (laughs) on some roller skates, attach it to the outer wall of the roller rink, and have a whole bunch of them just rolling around, and park comes by, put in. Park comes by, put in. Something like that. Allied Leisure's advantage here was that they could do 150 a day because they had a proper assembly line at a fairly large factory. No longer a thousand square feet. It was much bigger than that by this point. They'd expanded a couple of times. They had a 40,000 square foot facility by this time, much bigger than that little 1,000. They were cranking these things out 150 a day. And here's the thing. They got in early, early, early. Because we have to remember, and we talked about this in our Pong episode, Pong is technically a 1972 game. Atari started shipping their very first units in November 1972. But for all intents and purposes, it's a 1973 game. 
because Atari wasn't able to get any kind of national distribution going until March of 1973. For all practical purposes, outside of it being this little curiosity on the West Coast, Pong didn't really hit the market until March 1973. But because when it was still this little curiosity on the West Coast, Advanced Automatic had sent Allied Leisure a Pong cabinet, Paddle Battle also came out in March 1973, the same month that Atari was finally getting national distribution. Critically, a good solid month before any of the Chicago companies were able to get involved. There were some other clones coming out at around the same time, but they were all from other small California companies. Foreplay, Ramtech, Nutting. Other companies that were maybe a little better in some cases at manufacturing than Atari were, but were still not big, huge factory operations like the Chicago people. Allied Leisure was the first company that was able to get significant video game product out into the world. And it's on the East Coast, which then makes the distribution, at least to the East Coast, a heck of a lot easier. Right. I mean, the East Coast probably has not really even seen Pong yet at this point, because it is so limited to the West Coast. They're able to sell a lot of these things. I mean, there's disagreement on exactly how many. It's not like we have sales sheets, but they sold well over 10,000 of them. They may have sold as many as 17,000, may have been just 12,000. I say just. (laughs) That's still a big number in this time period. They sold somewhere in the tens of thousands of units. Nobody else was able to do that. Atari sold about 8,000 Pongs altogether. The Chicago companies... While some of them did quite well, none of them were able to reach 10,000 either. And the reason for that is Allied Leisure got there first. So by the time Chicago realized what was happening and companies like Bally Midway, which licensed their version from Atari, or the companies that just straight up cloned it, like Chicago Coin and Williams, by the time these Chicago companies were getting their machines out in April and May of 1973, Allied Leisure had already been able to flood the market. They were already able to make bank on these things. So what they did is when the big Chicago companies came in, they cut the price. They could afford to cut the price at this point because they'd already made so much profit on it. They were already profitable. They didn't have to worry. They could cut the price and keep selling. The Chicago companies just getting started couldn't match them. So they got the early market just by having that advance notice from Advanced Automatic Then they were able to keep the market as the big companies were going on by cutting the price. Then, just as the big Chicago companies were getting to the point where they were ramped up on production and they felt comfortable that maybe they could start offering discounts as well because it's, it's a hit, it's huge, everyone's making money, they leapfrog everybody, including Atari, by releasing a four player version, Tennis Tourney, in August. As soon as that four-player model comes out, it kills the two-player market entirely. Because, of course, the four-player games can still be played by two players if you prefer, so it's not like it cuts off that two-player. But now you can have as many as four players playing. That means you could have twice the income coming into the machine, more people, more coins going in, because, of course, it's more expensive for everyone to play. But you and your entire family can play. Exactly. That kept them ahead of the market again. It forced the rest of the industry to react to them. 
Atari doesn't release their four-player game until September, and, and they're pissed about it. Nolan Bushnell gave an interview in the trades where he said that he was really upset that they had to release Pong Doubles, their four-player game, uh, when they did, because they had been planning not to release that for a few more months because they wanted to be in the two-player market longer, you know, milk that more, and then come back fresh with, with Pong Doubles. But everyone had to react and rush in because Allied Leisure led the way there. Tennis Tourney was also a hit, not nearly the same hit as Paddle Battle was. It only sold a few thousand units, but between them, they sold over 20,000 units, most likely, of ball and paddle games in 1973, and they were leading the market in that category. Now, as we talked about in our Pong episode, it was a short-lived category, but for the period of time that existed, they owned it. Not Atari, even though they invented it. Not Midway, even though they were the big Chicago company, but Allied Leisure was the company that was really owning that ball and paddle market, though nobody had a monopoly. Those other companies were selling thousands of units as well. Everybody was making money. Allied Leisure was making a whole lot of money. They're a public company, so that's important for them. It was public from the beginning. They actually took it public right when they were uh, creating it, which is kind of unusual for a small company like that. So they're a public company, so we know a little bit about what their finances were like because they had annual reports and everything. They were actually public. They did very well. They had had a loss in 1972, and they made a profit of several million dollars in 1973. Actually, a profit of $1.6 million. It wasn't several million, but they went from an $838,700 loss in 1972 to a $1.6 million profit in 1973. So life was good. But then a couple of different things happened. First of all, on the macro level, the Pong market did collapse in 1974. We did a whole episode on the Pong market, so we won't belabor that point here, but it did collapse. Something even worse happened to Allied Leisure, though, because on January 31st, 1974, while most of the staff were in London for a coin-op trade show, the ATE show, the big British trade show, there was a fire at the Allied Leisure plant that burned the whole thing to the ground. What was the cause of the fire? Well, funny you should ask that, because that is really a mystery still to this day. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, did a blog post on this uh, a few years ago, but there were very conflicting reports on what happened. Press accounts at the time said that it was an electrical fire. This is something that is echoed by some staff, particularly Gene Lipkin, who would later go on to Atari. He got his start started a distributor, but his first job with a manufacturer was actually as the sales manager at Allied Leisure. He left Allied Leisure when a commission that he was promised on paddle battle units sold didn't materialize, and then he ended up going to Atari and having a long uh, career in coin-op. Gene Lipkin, he says it was an electrical fire as well, but there are some employees that say it was arson. Troy Livingston, the manufacturing guy, says that it was gasoline was used, thrown into either end of the building. That conflicts with other people's accounts and conflicts with the newspaper accounts. The newspapers very publicly speculated on whether it was arson in the very first articles covering the fire, because that's something you do when something strange like that happens. But very quickly, the newspaper reports said that they had ruled out arson, that it was electrical. There were claims that it was part of a theft attempt. Chuck Arnold, who was not there at the time, but joined the company very soon thereafter, so was around for kind of the aftermath, the fallout of it says that it was part of a botched attempt to steal circuit boards from the company, 
And that the police pursued this later on, though Ethan, who researched this, wasn't able to find any evidence that that was true. However, they had had a break-in previous to that, where someone had broken into the factory and stolen boards. So it's possible that Chuck Arnold or the people that Chuck Arnold was hearing this from were conflating these two events, which happens all the time when people are trying to remember things. It could be that people are jumbling together this memory of this uh, theft that they did have with the fire that they had and are conflating them in their mind uh, to create one narrative. It looks like it probably wasn't arson. In all honesty, I mean, I think we can probably trust the newspapers on this one. I mean, Allied Leisure is a company that was kind of in some shady corners. There were rumors of mafia ties, as there often are with coin-op companies. You know, also with the Cuban immigrants, there were rumors about illegal employees and, and all of this kind of shady stuff. There was always a lot swirling around Allied Leisure. Was this something that was kept quiet because of all of that, or was it really just an electrical fire? I mean, I, I kind of tend to think it was just an electrical fire, but there are doubts. There are legitimate doubts. We'll probably never know. I mean, this was 50 years ago, almost. No forensic people are going to go back now. And <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the site's been completely rebuilt over. I mean, no one's going to go back now and figure this out. We're going to go with electrical fire, maybe put it in some light air quotes, and leave it for you, the listener, to decide which version you like best. Personally, I'm rooting for the, it would be very sad if your factory were to meet an unfortunate accident. If you do not allow us to play four-player Pong on the West Coast. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. This was a catastrophe. They suffered over $1.5 in total damages. This is in, remember, 1974 money. So, I mean, that's, that's a chunk of change in 1974. And I take it there was no, like, fire suppression system or anything there, because if the whole building is lost... Yeah, I'm guessing probably not. I mean, it's a factory in the 1970s. Codes weren't exactly then what they are now. I get the sense that the Brawns were not always investing everything they could into everything they had either, so it's not like they were going to have a state-of-the-art system. Well, the fact that it was probably, in, ele- in all seriousness, probably was an electrical fire, I mean, that, that just goes to show what kind of state they were keeping their building in, because <laughs> that means that their, their electrical system was probably not exactly up to code either, so it's no surprise they wouldn't have some kind of fire suppression system. And of course, everyone was gone, which made it worse. There was one employee, I believe, that perished in the fire, but there weren't that many people around because everyone was in London. Just imagine running cabinet-making saws with lamp cord. Or, you know, having your uh, entire entertainment and video game console suite plugged into a lamp cord extender that one was not aware of. Behind paneling. Fake wood (laughs) Ah. paneling. That went up in flames very easily when I tore it out. Yeah, that could have been trouble. But that's another story for another time. So, yeah, all their inventory was gone. Their factory was gone. That could have really been the end of the company, and I don't know how they pulled together. I mean, I literally don't know. I don't say that rhetorically. I don't know how they pulled together, but they did. The fire was in January. By March, they were back in production at a new 40,000-square-foot facility. Well, actually, they moved in in March, and then by April, they were back in full production on product. 90 days after that complete loss. Pretty remarkable, really. Impressive, yes. However, they were not back in video. This is because they, like many people, thought the market was dead at this point. I mean, the Pong market fell apart in 1974, and 
some of the more traditionally minded people in the business didn't see a separation between the ball and paddle market and the video game market. I mean, it was synonymous. The Pong market was the video game market. So with the Pong market dead, the video game market was dead. That's how a lot of the Chicago companies saw it, and that's how Allied Leisure saw it. When they went back into production, they did not continue on video. They had one final product in 1974, a game called Zap, where the paddles could be moved horizontally and vertically, but they were basically done. So where were they going now? Well, they were going in a couple of different directions. First of all, they were going into slot machines for the first time. This is something they'd actually wanted to do for a while, probably since near the beginning of the company. But they couldn't because Florida had laws outlawing slot machines and because of the Johnson Act, which made it illegal to ship slots where they were outlawed and everything, they couldn't make slot machines for legal reasons through a combination of Florida and federal law. However, in the early 1970s, Florida decided to allow for the manufacture of slot machines. This was a time when a lot of parts of the United States were looking at expanding into slot machines because there was a recession and cities were looking for new ways to raise money. And so there was a lot of serious consideration about what about gambling? The climate was changing. So they got into slot machines. They got into gambling machines. Another thing that they did was they doubled down on the electromechanical games. You know, this kind of the the simplistic narrative when people don't really realize what happened is that video came along and then that was it for electromechanical driving and shooting and all of this. You know, video just took over. There was this transitional period here in the early to mid-1970s when video was coming in, but people still weren't entirely sure what to make of it. The games themselves were very simplistic still. I mean, even when you got into the first driving and shooting games like Grand Track and Tank, they were still relatively primitive in a lot of ways, and there were still some ways in which the old electromechanical games could thrill a little bit in a way that these new video games can't. There is a transitional period here where some of those electromechanical novelty games, audiovisual games, could still find a place in the arcade. So that's the direction that Allied Leisure went here and released a series of rifle and projection shooting and driving games, electromechanical, starting in 1974. The big one in 74 was a game called Super Shifter, which involved controlling a 3D model of a Corvette that was actually based on Ron Halliburton's own car. I'm looking at this game now. You got a pretty cabinet. You got the car in the middle, and then you have a light on the right, the traditional countdown thing. Mm -hmm. You've got crowd shown on the left and right, and then you're supposed to drive straight on. It doesn't look like you have much in the way of a play field changing. It looks almost more like drag racing. Mm -hmm. You had to keep the car straight. It was a race against the clock kind of game, as many of these driving games were back then. The challenge was you had to get it into gear. You know, that's why it's called Super Shifter. The gear shift played a big role in this. And so you had to shift it through the various gears to gather speed efficiently. You had to use the steering wheel to keep your car straight because you lost time if it wasn't straight. So it wasn't so much keeping it on the road or dodging obstacles. Like you said, it wasn't so much a play field situation. But you still had to maintain control of your vehicle to get the best possible time. That's kind of where the goal was. It was a big hit for the time. We have to put this in context. This is a time when if you sold several thousand units, you had a big hit. I mean, it wasn't selling 10,000, 20,000. It wasn't Space Invaders selling 60,000. 
but for the time, it was a fairly sizable hit. They started with an initial production run of 3,000 units. They sold out that production run and had to put it in production a second time to meet demand. It was one of the top games of the year. Panel of experts for the trade publication replay even voted it one of the best arcade pieces of all time. Now, any best of all time polls are going to have little recentism in them because people tend to vote for things that they've seen recently that they remember, and you always remember well the things you've just seen. But still, that's pretty remarkable. A game that just came out, a panel of experts decided it was one of the best games ever. I mean, was it really one of the best games ever? That's not important. The important thing is it had a huge impact. It really captured the imagination of people in the industry. They also then followed up in 1975. They did a game called Ski. A lot of websites call it a video game. It is not a video game. I want to be very clear on that. The websites that call it that, they're wrong. They see pictures of the cabinet. They're like, oh, that cabinet looks vaguely like a video game. It must be a video game. But no, it's not. It's an electromechanical game. And it's interesting because you actually stand on these two foot pads simulating the skis and grip a pair of ski poles and you have to twist and turn your body to control your skier. It's kind of the same idea of Super Shifter, where you have to keep your player on the track, but instead of your player being a Corvette you're controlling with a steering wheel, it's a skier that you're actually literally controlling with your body. So that's kind of cool. The other big game that they have, their biggest game in 1975, is one called F-114, which is a huge projection screen air combat game. When I say huge, I mean huge. It had a gigantic curved monitor and a swivel seat because you actually could not take it all in. It was big enough that you could not take it all in just by looking straight at it. So there was actually a swivel chair so you could turn around to your sides and, and get the stuff in your peripheral. You know, kids, how you like your big curved screens? <laughs> this thing has it. Absolutely. It had great sound, explosions, whine of the jet engines, and there was also voice. Pilots would actually be talking, you know, pointing out where the planes were coming in. Some of the exact lines from, you know, okay, Shark Lead has a tally on the bandit. Shark Lead had a tally on the bandit. He's on our left, 10 o'clock, low left, you know, stuff like that. That's actual dialogue, you know, from the audio. So it was this big, massive audiovisual experience. Yeah, I'm looking at some video of it now. It's really pretty, actually. Yeah. You got a lot of lights going on. Yeah, it's simplistic in a way because the other planes and stuff in your reticule are just white overlays on there. But it's all moving around and you got this big field of view. You're on that swivel chair, as you said, but you have to take full advantage of that. And it feels like trying to really get that full depth of field thing going on. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So that was a big hit. They did do one video game, because video games are taking off a little bit again. They did do a video game called Street Burners that was actually somewhat successful during this time period. Not as successful as their electromechanical output. It was not as successful as Super Shifter or F-114, but it also made it onto the charts. Street Burners was basically just taking Super Shifter and turning it into a video game for all intents and purposes. That same kind of drag racing kind of feel to it. They tried their hand at slot machines... They did the electromechanical stuff and actually had some good success with Super Shifter and F-114. They did a little bit of video, but they didn't do much of it. And then they also tried a photo booth. They created a photo booth in 1976 called AstroPrint, which was novel for the time because, I mean, photo booths had existed already. They'd existed since like the 50s. But AstroPrint printed computer-generated portraits made from ASCII characters. So it was pretty early on that. It was a sensation when it debuted. However, it cost $12,500 in 1976 money. 
so they only sold about 20 of them. But they're trying, because they're out here in the boonies in Florida, and they have to come up with something that nobody else is doing. So they're trying the audiovisual games, they're trying off and on the video games, they're trying this photo booth. And then the other thing that they try again in 1975 and 1976 is pinball. They had tried the shaker ball thing in 72-73, just when they thought that they may try to have a go at it, video came and interrupted their plans, but now they're back in late 1975, trying their hand at pinball again. But just like the first time, they know that they have to have something the Chicago companies don't. This time, that thing they try to do is solid-state pinball. They're not the only small company doing solid-state pinball. Atari's working towards something. Ramtech is working towards something. Of course, we did an episode on Dave Nutting and what he was up to at Milwaukee Coin Industries and then at Dave Nutting Associates, and Dave Nutting Associates was about to put out a solid-state pinball system as well. There were a few companies that were doing this, but it was all kind of the same impetus. It's like, the companies in Chicago don't know how to work with solid-state yet. This is our way to get into pinball in a way that they can't match. A couple of years later, the Chicago companies do get in, but at this point, they're not there yet. And so Allied Leisure's been doing video games. They've been doing solid-state stuff. They were basically like, let's look at doing solid-state. They create a game called Dynamite, which is not spelled dynamite, like a stick of dynamite. It's spelled D-Y-N space O apostrophe space M-I-T-E. The reason it's spelled like that is it's actually a very famous catchphrase in this time period from the CBS sitcom Good Times, which was one of the biggest sitcoms in America at the time. And one of the main characters on that, played by comedian Jimmy Walker, had the catchphrase Dynamite, which became a national catchphrase. It wasn't a licensed pinball machine, but they named the pinball machine to take advantage of that. So they built this thing in 1975. They'd made its debut at the MOA show in October. They were one of the first two companies, along with Mirko Games in Arizona, to introduce a solid-state pinball table. It was a disaster. It only sold about 1,600 units, which, in the context of the times, was certainly not what they were hoping for. But again, it was the same problem. The same problem that plagued a lot of their products manufacturing difficulties. They could not build reliable product. In this case, the big culprit was actually the digital scoring unit, which was not something they made themselves in-house, but was something that they sourced from a third party, and it was faulty. So all of the first run that went out had a faulty digital scoring unit. Another problem that they had, and this was entirely because they didn't know what they were doing in pinball, which again, those Chicago companies just know so much better than you do how to do pinball. You think you can do pinball and keep up with Chicago, but they know how to do it better. They decided, presumably, to cut down on costs to use chrome-plated balls instead of solid steel balls for the pinballs. Here's the problem with chrome. Chrome streaks. When it's being batted all around the playfield, chrome leaves streaks. Steel doesn't. The balls were messing up the playfields. The digital scoring system was completely borked. So it's the same thing. They get some orders, they send some units out, the orders are faulty, word gets around, orders are canceled, and they can't recover. It basically killed their pinball business that year. That it didn't force them to get out of pinball, but it killed their pinball business that year. This happened at a very bad time for the company generally. Pinball was a problem. 
they had had some great success with those electromechanical games like Super Shifter that we talked about. But then their follow-up product in that, their follow-up electromechanical game, Daytona 500, also had to be delayed because of manufacturing difficulties and quality issues. The same thing. And then at the same time, these things happen. Those things are small disasters. But at the same time, they have a major disaster. Because they also, for whatever reason, decide to get into the consumer video game market at this exact same time. Now, we have to remember that the consumer video game market in 1976, which is the year we're talking about, is not the Atari 2600. It's not microprocessor-based systems and cartridges with ROM memory. This is still the dedicated console market, where you take a chip, a large-scale integrated circuit. That chip is designed to be able to play in hardware. It's not programmed. It's designed to play in hardware a certain number of games, usually three or four or five different Pong variants. Then you put some plastic around that thing. I mean, you put it in a circuit board, you put some plastic around that thing with a control system, and you release that as a home video game system for somewhere between, uh, you know, 70 and 100 bucks. I think what happened here, and, you know, I don't have any firsthand accounts, but my guess on what happened here is Allied Leisure saw an opportunity to replicate in the home what they had done so well in the arcade. They came into this Pong market in the arcade I'm talking about now, with a superior manufacturing capability and with the ability to flood the market and then cut the price. Because of that, they were able to leapfrog ahead of everybody else. Now the home market is taking off in the same way as the arcade market did with these ball and paddle games. In 1975, Atari and Magnavox sell a few hundred thousand, but they're back-ordered for hundreds of thousands more. 1976 looks like it's going to be the year that everybody gets into this market. Allied Leisure saw an opportunity again to use their superior manufacturing capability to try to get in on this market early and leapfrog the competition and take over the Pong market. And so they create two games for release in 1976. Name of the game 1 and Name of the game 2. They're essentially the same game. It's just the name of the game one is four-player, and name of the game two is two-player. They offer four different ball-and-paddle games and two different target-shooting games. They're making these using one of the fancy new Pong-on-a-chips that came out in that year. We talked about this. We've done the home market in this period, how several semiconductor companies, after the success of Home Pong in 1975 created single-chip solutions, Pong-on-a-chip LSIs, that they would then market to companies that wanted to enter this new market. They did not use the general instrument chip that was so popular with so many producers. They used a competing chip from the company Mostech, the uh, MCS 7600-001. That's the chip designation. Four ball-and-paddle games, two target-shooting games. Bundled in a four-player version, name of the game one, two-player version, name of the game two. They're selling them for really cheap prices. This is how they're going to try to get in. They're going to try to get in the same way they did with Pong. Manufacture the heck out of it and sell it cheaply. Name of the game one is $67. Name of the game two, the cheaper one, is $45. Remember, most games in this field are in the $70 to $100 range. Home Pong's kind of at the top of the market at the $100 price point. Other companies like Coleco that are doing the Pong on the chip thing are kind of at the $70 mark for a two-player game. 
So yes, Allied Leisure has a $67 game. That one's in the kind of the same price area, but for four players, which other people aren't doing at that price point. Their two-player game, which is more analogous to what Home Pong and Coleco Telstar are doing, is at $45, way undercutting the competition. You know, this is a period of time in 1976 where you can sell, I mean, the market is however many of these you can make. This is a market that heated up really fast. Even though they don't have a track record in consumer products, you know, they've, they've been entirely a coin-op company, when they announce this stuff, they immediately get orders for 60,000 units, which is over $3 million worth of inventory. The Pong on a chip thing that they put out, it looks kind of funny. You got a more or less orange block on the ground. You got what looks like a giant freaking heat sink or radiator on top. And then you have four controllers surrounding the radiator just sort of hooked on there. It's really, really odd looking. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's the four-player version of it. The two-player version looks a little more normal than that. It's kind of the same design in a lot of ways, but instead of that having that centerpiece sticking out, it's flat. And the uh, the controllers are, are stored on the side of it. And there was also a light gun that shipped with it as well. A very realistic-looking light gun, the kind of realism that you can't do today because of reasons, also shipped with it to play the target shooting games. They lined up 60,000 in orders. They figured that by the time the smoke had cleared, they might be able to sell as many as 150,000. They were all set to go, and then they ran afoul of that organization that everybody in this business runs afoul of, Jeffrey. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. No one expects the FCC! That's true. They never seem to expect them, and yet they are always there. Lurking in your electrons, quietly counting them to make sure that they fall into spec, making (laughs) sure that you have proper radiation standards so that you do not disturb national broadcasts with your video game that's right we won't belabor the point because we've talked about the fcc many times but just to give the two second version or as close to two seconds as rambling alex can ever give there were very strict interference rules in the 1970s they changed later which is why later companies releasing stuff in the 1980s and beyond never had this problem but there were very strict interference standards You could basically have zero electron leakage, zero leakage from your device that could potentially interfere with the signal of a nearby broadcast. Just about everybody that tried to get into this market failed the FCC tests the first time around because very few of them had previous experience working with consumer electronics that actually broadcast a signal, so they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have the expertise. They didn't have the labs. They didn't have the testing facilities. But also, the rules were just ridiculously, ludicrously strict. Stricter than they needed to be, quite frankly. Sure enough, Allied Leisure, just like everybody else, just like Coleco, just like Fairchild with their Channel F programmable, just like dozens of other companies, they failed their first round of FCC testing. So a system that was supposed to come out in September had to be delayed until December. So what happens when your product is delayed? People go someplace else where they can get the product they need before Christmas, thank you, which is when everyone's going to be buying these things, hello. So those 60,000 orders, those evaporated. They ended up only building about 17,000. And they couldn't sell them all. 
but they had already been ramping up to meet that higher demand in orders. So they had already bought parts for 25,000 units and were only able to make 17,000. They weren't even able to sell all of those. They sold a few more in 77, but now you're getting into deep discounting because the other thing about this dedicated market is that it heated up and fell apart really fast. Plus, since people were constantly putting out new models, which is ridiculous to think of now, but that's how they were treating it then. It was almost like you know your new automobile models, your new video game models every year. Anything from the previous year, like these games that came out late, then had to be deeply, deeply discounted to move them at all in the next year because there's a whole new round of better games coming. So they took a bath on this. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. Let me guess. This is why they decided, you know, let's distance ourselves from that Allied Leisure name and rebrand us as a whole new name. Well, no, not yet. This is kind of the root of that. We're not there yet, but I mean, the company starts being known literally around the industry as Allied Loser. That's what people start calling it, kind of cruelly. The home video game is a disaster. The solid-state pinball has not come together. The electromechanical arcade game stuff had been doing okay, but manufacturing difficulties means that they've had their latest units delayed. Magnavox has sued them, just like they've sued everybody else. Now they're having to pay Magnavox a royalty on their video game product, the same Magnavox patent infringement suits for ball and paddle games that we devoted a whole episode to. So, yeah. 1975, company loses $700,000. 1976, the company loses $3 million. March 4th, 1977, the company files for bankruptcy. That would normally mean it go bye-bye, good day, nice seeing you, sir. (laughs) Yeah, that often would. It didn't, though. It's able to make it through. First of all, Dave Braun, because he's had some success in life, is himself pretty well off. He's pretty wealthy. So he actually loans the company a million dollars of his own money to keep them solvent. They're able to limp through 1977. They try out a few different things. They try a home backgammon game, electronic game. It never actually ships, but they design one. They're trying to make some headway back in there. They were taking on subcontracts with their factory because they have the big factory operation. They start taking on all sorts of subcontracting jobs just to try to keep the lights on. They even manufacture fiberglass skateboard parks in their factory. Not because they think they're going to get into the skateboarding business, but just because they've got the factory, it's an asset, and they're just trying to keep the lights on. They lose another $3.1 million in 1977, fiscal year. Robert Braun, David's son, the one with cerebral palsy, dies on December 28th, 1977. One of the principal reasons the company was founded is now dead. But they are able to get out of bankruptcy. You know, the loans, uh, you know, they're able to get enough credit together with David Braun's help that they do are discharged from bankruptcy before the end of 77. In 1978, they're able to limp back a little bit because they finally hit on a pinball innovation that finally does something for them. That's cocktail pinballs. We've talked before about the cocktail market in video games. We did that in our Pong episode. This idea that now that arcade games are becoming more respectable, that they might be able to creep out of bars and into higher class cocktail lounges. 
but that video games had to be redesigned for those venues because you couldn't have the big upright models because cocktail lounges would not want these big uprights that people were gathered around and playing noisily rather than ordering drinks. That's not how cocktail lounges work. They're more sophisticated. They're not just working class bars in space. Far more sophisticated. The cocktail cabinet idea was that you would put a video game in a table, a standard height like a table at a cocktail lounge, so that people would sit around the cabinet and play the game quietly while they were also ordering their drinks and, and sipping their drinks. So that works great for video games. I mean, it works well enough for video games. Pinball is a little harder to get out of that upright format because there's, there's just no way to take traditional pinball and slim it down that way. Allied comes up with a model for a cocktail pinball. Obviously, it's got to be smaller than a traditional pinball, but it's in one of those tables, so it's something that maybe a higher-class lounge will take. They partnered with a company called Fascination Limited that was also one of the first companies to introduce cocktail video games a few years before this to put out this cocktail pinball. And again, this is kind of the same thing that happened with the Pong market. So the Pong market had gotten really big, and because it had gotten big, they were like, now we're legitimate, we can get into higher-class venues. So you got the cocktail games, and that market didn't last very long, but I mean, it was an attempt because video had gotten very popular. So now you have the same thing happening with pinball, because solid-state pinball has come in now by 1978. Even though the Chicago companies were a little slow getting in, Bally has taken this market by storm and Solid State is here. So there's the same thought that, hey, we've got a sophisticated product again. Maybe we can push this into cocktail lounges again. And so that's where Allied Leisure gets this idea to do this cocktail pinball. And they partner with Fascination. They do a game called The Entertainer and then follow it up with a few others. Take Five, Flame of Athens, and Hearts Spades being the other three. Take Five was the most successful of the four. Between them, they sell 4,290 units in 1978, which is small potatoes at this point because solid-state pinballs are starting to sell in the tens of thousands. But for a company that has been in bankruptcy, that hasn't been able to do anything right, this is actually fantastic news. I'm looking at one of their pinball machines called Star Shooter. Uh Uh-huh. Two people are actually just sitting down looking at it and talking about it while one of them plays it. It's almost like a extended hexagon design to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. The left and right sides are longer to accommodate the play field a little bit, but you have it angled in like a hexagon. Inside the hexagon on the right-hand side, you have the plunger that you normally pull, but it's recessed within the cabinet. Mm-hmm. You got your buttons on your left and right like you'd expect and coin slot and all that fun stuff. It's actually pretty decently lit in there, and I'm actually pretty impressed that they can have the ball move around as fast as it does. This thing's more or less flat, but it has to have enough of an angle that you have gravity giving the ball something to give a challenge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Star Shooter was one of their two games they released in uh, 1979, follow-up to those four that I mentioned. Disco 79 was the other one they released in 1979. By the end of the 1979 fiscal year, they've sold 10,000 of these cocktail machines. You know, they sold a little over 4,000 in 78, and then by the end of the 79 fiscal year, they've sold 10,000. They're doing a little better, but they're still losing money, even though their sales are increasing. Their sales in 1979 are $6.2 million, which is the best they've had since the video boom, the Pong boom. I mean, this is the best they've done in years. They still lose nearly a million dollars in 1979. They are still known as allied loser around the industry. 
still not certain they're going to make it. And I'm not sure David Braun really has much of a stomach for being in this anymore. He's old. He's about 70 now. His son is dead. Basically, the whole reason the company was founded. It's been a struggle. So I'm not sure that his heart's necessarily in this thing anymore. But at the same time, you have the new video boom just starting. Space Invaders has come out. And there's talk about how this video thing may start to become a big deal. This attracts an entrepreneur from Binghampton, New York, by the name of Milton Kaufman, who, along with members of other members of his family, controls a conglomerate called the Kaufman Group of Industries that are just involved in various business ventures, some of them manufacturing, some of them others. They have a reputation for coming in and taking over a failing company and turning it around. Milton Kaufman has a belief that video games are about to become one of the entertainment fields of the 1980s. So he's looking at getting the Kaufman Group into this video game thing, but of course they have no expertise. They're business people. They're they're not involved in coin-op. So they need something existing. On June 1st, 1979, Milton Kaufman reaches an agreement with David Braun, who, like I said, I don't know this for certain, but is probably just ready to be done with this at this point, for Brighton Products, one of the specific Kaufman companies, to acquire Allied Leisure. Braun's getting out of it. He's divesting himself of this whole thing. He's washing his hands of it. And it'll now be Milton Kaufman and other members of his family that control the fate of the company. The company that had been known as Allied Loser for years would, for a very brief period, take a meteoric rise into being one of the great manufacturers in the American coin-operated video game industry, only to make as dramatic a fall as the entire industry began to collapse around it. That is where we will take up in our second and final part of this look at Allied Leisure Centauri as we cover the transition into Centauri and some of the successes and failures it had during the golden age of video arcade games in the early 1980s. I guess I have to rename this episode to just Allied Leisure now. You can, you certainly can, yes. I had a feeling we'd break around here. I never know until we record these things, but I always kind of guess that I'm going to talk a lot. I mean, that's usually a safe bet, wouldn't you say, Jeffrey? Just a bit. As someone who eliminates anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes of you talking from every episode. (laughs) Though in fairness, a lot of that is eliminating 15 minutes of me pausing. And misspeaks. Don't forget those (laughs) misspeaks. Yes, kids, you get to suffer with the long pause. That's what I saved you from. <laughs> so, yes, we will wrap up the Centauri story, get that transition from Allied Leisure to Centauri, and wrap up the history of the company next time. On They Create Worlds, the historical editions. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. 
Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.